I worked two jobs, uh, one at the airport and uh, uh, one with this uh, fellowship, and it means that I don't get as much time as I'd like with my kids. I've got three of the beggars and they're, they're full of energy and uh, uh, quick to smile and it's uh, something I enjoy doing, uh, uh, spending time with them. However, um, my wife and I, we seem to have worked out this arrangement where I get the, uh, the privilege of putting them to bed and it's not just a case of sitting on them until they fall asleep. It, it is something uh, uh, a little bit more deliberate than that. One of our congregation, uh, Bianca, has come up with this acronym of TSP or teaspoons uh, where in the kids prayer they have to say thank you sorry and please and our family have adopted this and um, so we say teaspoons at nights where uh, we say thank you to God for something uh, uh, and we repent of our sins and uh, we pray for things like their friends that aren't doing so well people that we know uh, that are sick etc uh, etc et and then we try and read a bit of scripture normally the Jesus storybook bible and then it's my favourite bit the, the, the bit that I really enjoy try and read them a, a Christian fictional uh, story um, we've gone through like the Patricius and John books and various other ones but we've also enjoyed some of the Hobbit uh, we've enjoyed the Narnia Chronicles um, there is this sort of new series called the Wing Feather Saga. If you're into all the Kickstarter stuff, they're creating this really good cartoon film uh, uh, that you, you can take a look at. And there is this, uh, there's this Bristol Christian um, who has uh, written these uh, Crusader uh, adventures. And it's a brand new sort of Christian uh, set that um, I've discovered and that we're going through those. And uh, I love to give my kids, just before they go to bed, lots of adventures and uh, stimulation. And you may think that's a very bad idea. Um, it can seem a very bad idea if you come into the Taylor household at uh, about sort of 7 to 7.30. Uh, but I want to uh, read this quote out. Um, G.K. Chesterton, who wrote the, the Father Brown stories and orthodoxy and some amazing uh, Christian books. And he says this. Exactly what the fairy tale does is this. It accustoms the child for a series of clear pictures to the idea that the limitless terrors have a limit, that these shapeless enemies have enemies in the nights of God, that there is something in the universe more mystical than darkness. There is something stronger than strong fear. And so we read these stories of children being taken into other uh, sort of dimensions and battling dragons and goblins and various other mystical things. And it may not surprise you, by the end of these stories, the youngest one often has fallen asleep. Uh, but the other two are kind of revved up and they're ready to go. They'll have identified with the characters and they want to go out and fight dragons and find the treasure and defeat evil and proclaim justice over the land. And um, so we have this point, we have all this energy and I don't want them to just suddenly switched off. So uh, we went through a time where they would suddenly stand, um, the story would end, and then they would stand in the middle of their room, like absolutely rigid, and go, come on, Daddy. And so what I would be expected to do, I would come along, and I would be expected to lift them up, 
and then they would put their arm out like Superman and they would be expected to sort of fly around the room. So you do this and uh, you do like somersaults and they giggle. But my favourite bit was um, just outside uh, the boys' bedroom where we do this. There are the stairs. And um, without um, always my wife's knowledge, we would take them up and they'd be like, they'd, they'd be planking on my hands. And they would take them, and you would take them above the stairs. And suddenly they were quite happy um, being in my arms, like sort of over beds and even over the floor. But suddenly as they went over uh, the stairs and there is that big drop, suddenly the trust level has to suddenly accelerate. Suddenly they have to believe that I am strong enough. Suddenly they have to want to be Superman, not just over the floor, but over a couple of stories drop. And um, it is very exciting, they're giggling, and you can feel them sort of tense up, and then they're relieved when it finishes, and then they sort of want to do it again. And you have like all this turmoil in their uh, minds. And it's this great moment of their imagination and uh, their trust in my strength, which at the moment has sort of kept up, and uh, uh, my love for them. And, and uh, we're going into this next bit of uh, Exodus, and it is the same themes that we find in Exodus. Uh, um, these themes of trust, these themes of imagination, and these themes of love. Moses wants to know if and when God picks him up. How can you know that he won't end up in a pile at the bottom of the steps? That is what Moses' question fundamentally is. If you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 4. It says this. Exodus chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answered, What if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you, you loop? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. And the Lord said, Throw it on the ground. And Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake. And I really like this. And Moses ran. Moses ran for his life from this flipping snake that God created. Um, then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. These are not things you do with snakes. But nevertheless, this is what God said. So Moses reached out, probably simultaneously cursing and blessing God, uh, reached out and he took hold of the snake and it turned, thankfully, into a staff in his hand. And verse 5, This, said the Lord, is so that you may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. And Moses put his hand inside his cloak, and then he took it out, and the skin was leprous, and it had become white as snow. Now put it back in your cloak, he said, and Moses put it back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored by the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if, you, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. God has appeared to Moses, this burning bush and this 
uh, commission to rescue his people. And Moses is suddenly convinced that he is going to be unconvincing. Moses is convinced that he's going to come to the Israelites and to the Egyptians and they will be like, who are you? What is your God? We're not taking you seriously. No one has any reason to believe him. He's not a great leader. He's not a warrior. He is not someone with any uh, political or spiritual or uh, 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 cultural uh, significance. There is no reason any of them to believe them. And God says, ultimately, they won't listen to your words. They will listen to my authority. I am going to act and they will be compelled to listen because my authority will be upon you. And the Israelites and the Egyptians will respond. And it makes for a more interesting story that way. Now, um, as we read the same thing, I wonder what your reaction was. Because uh, we have some different ones in here. Uh, most people in this country, generally speaking, have a healthy and justified wariness of snakes. You know, they look at the things and they are cautious about them. In uh, sort of Harry Potter, they are emblems of, you know, they're, they're a little bit scary, a little bit uh, something to be uh, careful of. Uh, our own Peter, who was a missionary in the Congo for some time, saw some very poisonous ones. Uh, uh, where he was out there, there were some ones that would do more than just nip you. And I love the stories he have of this dog um, that went out and he used to hunt them and find them and take them out. Um, and if we have any sort of animal lovers, I'll just leave it there without being any more uh, gratuitous. And, and, and so we have uh, uh, Pete's experience being very much a, snakes are not something you welcome in. They're not something that you lay a table, a place for at your table. You want them outside the camp rather than inside. But weirdly, our church uh, has a kind of different perspective and an almost unbiblical one, without being putting too much fine a point on it. Uh, we've got people in the church that like snakes, even though there's a story in Genesis where the snake is the devil, okay? They still like snakes. And uh, they even weirdly keep them as pets. They have uh, little glass boxes in their houses where you can perpetually see them slither about and get slightly unnerved. And one time, um, we had someone and they brought in a snake. And you can tell Pete, who had enjoyed his time in the Congo and had seen that snakes were not things to be welcomed in in polite society. He was a very wary and uh, we didn't really know what to do. And so uh, this is my daughter a few years ago looking at this snake and me and her wondering, going, we know the Bible stories. Is this good? Should we be doing this? At the end of Mark it says you can handle snakes with impunity is that is what is going on but the thing is neither hostility which I tend to lean on uh, more for about snakes nor affection helps you understand this passage at all it's not the way in to what is going on with Moses and ultimately the Egyptians and Israelites later in the kingdom of Egypt where Moses was going to go Snakes were seen as divine. The sun god Ra was often depicted 
as a snake. And the cobra was connected with a particular goddess, um, the goddess uh, Rajet. And apparently they had a, uh, an image of this cobra goddess in the pharaoh's crown. And the idea was the pharaoh had this crown and any of pharaoh's enemies would come to him. The goddess would kind of spit venom in the king's enemies. And, and that there, was this, uh, uh, um, there was this high view of snakes in the Egyptian culture. Um, and in fact, it's not just localised to Egypt. The whole region seems to have this bizarre affection to uh, uh, snakes and sees them as symbols not just of horrid pests like cockroaches, but as symbols of wisdom and fertility and even healing. Uh, there is this Greek myth. Uh, there is the, uh, Zeus, which is the top god, and he has this uh, grandson called uh, Asclepius. And this Asclepius, apparently he saves a poorly snake. I'm a bit vague as to what I didn't really look into the story too much. But apparently there's this poorly snake and Asclepius gets involved. And the snake whispers these great secrets in Asclepius's ear. And suddenly, Asclepios becomes uh, uh, um, sort of uh, a high achiever in medicine, and he becomes revered as the god of medicine. And um, suddenly, uh, we have a symbol of the rod of Asclepius and the snake around it, and that becomes the symbol of this god of medicine in Greek culture. Now, um, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's something called the World Health Organization. Yeah, we've been in a pandemic, if you haven't noticed, and who have had a lot to say about uh, what is going on and what is the best practice, and they're seen under authority. And this is uh, uh, their sort of um, symbol, this is their title. And if you notice, right in the middle is a flipping snake. And this is the rod of Asclepius. It is reminiscent of this Greek myth of this snake being associated with health and healing. And so this is the context that Moses is coming in. His staff becoming a snake and then becoming a staff again uh, is suddenly in an Egyptian culture that worship snakes, that sees them as divine, that sees them as connected with healing. And suddenly it takes on a different flavour. Suddenly this uh, staff becoming the snake and back again isn't like the staff becoming a rat or a cockroach or um, if you live in my neighbourhood like a feral cat that you sort of uh, spray with the hose pipe to get a out your garden. It, it, it's something more revered than that. What the miracle says is more. God is saying this thing that you look to for health, I'm the Lord of that. You see that thing that you respect. Egyptians, you see the snake which you revere and connect with gods that you connect with healing. I am the God of that. I am in charge. And I think we do well to listen to this message. 
If you've got a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 12. There's nothing like turning to the uh, parables of Jesus to make uh, a point nice and easily. And it says this in uh, uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 16. And then Jesus told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And then I will say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. You're like, what a wise man. You know, he follows the uh, wisdom of the squirrel laying up investments for tomorrow. You know, some aspects of Proverbs will be well pleased with this guy's um, example. Jesus, however, seems less inclined to uh, be up for this one. Uh, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will, de will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. This parable is about two things. Firstly, it exposes greed. To put it plainly, seeking and longing to acquire wealth is not a godly attitude. If that is something you're up for, accumulation, then Jesus said, yeah, you've missed it. The boat has gone. You've missed the boat on this one. It is not healthy to be consumed with that objective. What is good is generosity. Giving stuff away, that is the sign that the Holy Spirit's in your heart, that Jesus dying on the cross has changed you, your inner being. Being one that counts every penny, that hoards and seeks to accumulate, this is uh, a poverty uh, spirituality. Be generous to other people and to God, and then you will be healthy. You may not have much money, but you'll be healthy, and that is the better alternative. And then the second thing, and this is the thing I want to drill down to this morning, is that uh, it challenges the idea that people can obtain peace through financial security. Um, it's something that we all want, financial security. You know not to worry about the bills. I have uh, what seems to me more direct debits in my life than I could possibly need. I don't, every time I look at them, it, it makes me slightly panic. And yet, uh, I have a wage that covers it. And so all the direct debits come out and, and the wage comes in and they more or less sort of balance each other out. And there is that sense of uh, security and there is that, there is that uh, temptation to want more money coming in so it would more than balance the direct debit out that then you have more for the future. There's people that pay all sorts of money so that they can get wealth and so that they cannot worry about the bills. So they cannot just have the, the, the worst level of service from Virgin Media. But we kept, kept one, uh, we're getting to what seems to be a, like a high point 
of internet usage where I walked into uh, my kids the other day and not only they were playing Roblox at like this extreme speed, but they were watching YouTube at the same time on like a cartoon. And I'm like, I'm, I, we can't be on the lowest level now of Virgin Media because we have to pay for more because they demand in all this uh, activity. And the, the idea is that the more money you get, the more financial security, the more peace. You know, I can afford these things and I will have food left over for tomorrow. And Jesus says, that's bad thinking. If you seek after that, you have got it wrong. Even if you have massive wealth, even if you have Virgin Media's top tier package with all the sports and everything else, you are still vulnerable in so many ways that money won't help you. Health is the obvious one. You can have all the money in the world, but in the end, your health is something that makes you really vulnerable. Not only can you get sort of uh, knocked down by a car, but uh, cancer, COVID, whatever, can suddenly get you when you least expect it. It doesn't matter how much wealth you've got. And so this mentality that you can insulate yourself in life by just accumulation is a falsehood. And so to chase after money so you can be insulated against life is faulty thinking. You are chasing after a peacefulness that is an illusion. I wonder if you're content. I wonder if you chase after money. I wonder if you are satisfied. It is really easy. Uh, I think Christians may be quite good at lying to themselves sometimes. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you trust him for everything? Yes. However, I wonder what makes you agitated. What do you get cross about? What causes your heart to beat a little faster? Perhaps it's when time you thought allotted to yourself is suddenly taken away. Where money you thought you had is suddenly leeches out in an unexpected bill. When your health fails, perhaps that causes you anxiety. When your relationships stutter, or perhaps when your uh, position or reputation is damaged. All of these things can bring anxiety and panic. They can make us angry and moody. And Jesus says, you need to find your peace in me. If any of these other things you seek your peace in, when they are destabilised, you will become unpeaceful. But if you find your peace in me, you won't get destabilised, you won't get rocked. You will find a peace that goes on. Our Heavenly Father looks at us encouragingly and says, trust in me. Stand up erect in your bedroom with your hand lifted up and let me lift you up and hold you. I'm not going to drop you as I wish you around the bedroom. And over the stairs, it may look a bit worse, but you're still going to be okay. 
There is this invite to find your peace, not in your circumstances, not in your schemes to make your life more insulated against uh, problems, but in your Heavenly Father. We're not to draw our comfort and solace from medicine. You're not even supposed to get it from family or a really good bank balance. Ultimately, all these things are going to fall over. They will become inadequate. It's really nice, the Hell's Angels chapter, local chapter has come to visitors in the car park. Um, our Heavenly Father is powerful enough to lift us and hold us and never drop us. And we need to reorientate our trust not all these other things that the world chases after, but to him. Did he not save us through Jesus? Has he not promised us an eternity with him? Can we not trust him with everything? Now, the, I think the next miracle is even more interesting. Um, I don't look up leprosy on the internet. There's a little... Uh, uh, clue there for googling histories. Um, it is pretty grim. Um, I've managed to find like a diagram of leprosy rather than leprosy itself to hopefully tone it down. So we've got this the snake and the blood are signs um, and both of those happen again in Exodus chapter 7. But this one where Moses puts his hand in and it's leprous and then puts its hand in and it comes clean again, that doesn't happen. We aren't told this miracle occurs anywhere. God tells Moses to do this, that it will be a sign, but the account in Exodus misses it out. Let me read to you something. Leviticus chapter 13. It's not often we get to delve into Leviticus. Um, it's a, a portion of scripture that you want to keep anyone awake at all, then you don't <laughs> delve into it too much. Listen to this, it says this. Uh, Leviticus chapter 13. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when anyone has a swelling or a rash or a shiny spot on their skin, that may be a defining disease, they must be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons who is a priest. The priest is to examine the sore on the skin, and if the hair on the sore has turned white, and the sore appears to be more than skin deep, it is a defiling skin disease. Then the priest examines that person, he shall pronounce that ceremony unclean. What an awesome job it was to be a priest. Uh, no one ever prepared for that for me in Bible school, that you would like uh, medically diagnose people whether they were spiritually clean or not. But here you have. Uh, a priest looking at the skin and, and sort of talking about is it leprous or not. And then it says 45, verse 45, 46, the same chapter. Anyone with such a defining disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkept, and cover the lower part of their face, face and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean and they must live alone. They must live outside the camp. Some quite grim pronouncements 
for anyone with these skin diseases with something that would be covered perhaps with the term leprosy. The Jews got a snake turning into a staff turning into a snake and back again. The Jews got water turning into blood, but they struggled with this one. The idea of Moses having leprosy, even for a moment, was something that they just couldn't get to grips with. I think Moses probably performed this miracle for Pharaoh and the Israelites. God told him he was going to do it, um, and so I think Moses probably followed through and did it. And the Israelites and Moses and, and Pharaoh saw this thing, but the, the Israelites in their annals of history struggled with saying that Moses had leprosy. They knew the implications of having leprosy were that you had to live alone, that you were unclean, that you contaminated the whole camp. And the idea that their leader had this was something that more they can bear. And I think they were just like, yeah, we'll leave that bit out. You know, we say that it happened between him and God, but we're not saying that it happened with all the Israelites and the Egyptians walking because it is a bit too much. It blew their minds that God could cause and then heal a skin disease that uh, would normally cause someone to be uh, shunned and put out of the camp. Yet, the unclean skin was in preparation for a miracle. It was a chance of God's power. If you've got a Bible, turn to this. John chapter 9. says this in John chapter 9 verse 1. As Jesus went along, he saw a blind man uh, who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who seen this man or his parents that he was born blind? Um, neither this man nor this parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed to him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am in the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Classic healing activity. We do that all the time here. Very effective. Um, go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. And the man went and washed and came home seeing. It is really easy to think of a disadvantage as a curse. It is really easy to think that something that we struggle with is a divine judgment. We can put it on other people. Oh, you see, that's what happens when you don't follow God. Or we can see it in our own lives. Oh, you know, this thing I'm struggling with is something I deserve. And God has put it on me as a pronouncement, as an indictment. But this little passage and the leprosy uh, instance tells us a different story. Stop being so two-dimensional. Stop being so narrow-minded. Stop reading the simplest answer to something. God loves rich, full stories. The Bible is not a short pamphlet. It is not a short story. Some of you would much rather the uh, Bible just have sort of Ten Commandments 
and then a little story about Jesus and that be it. But it is full of complicated, messy stories. It is full of heroes that become uh, uh, baddies and then heroes again. It is full and woven together with God's grace and mercy. And God says, stop making these simplistic judgments, both on yourself and the people around you. Stop looking at things so uh, uh, with such a, a reductionist idea that you want to make this thing in your life, or oh, it's the curse of God, or that person is enduring God's disfavour. He is full of imagination and power. And he will use all sorts of things for his glory. This guy that was born blind was born blind so that Jesus' power could be manifest to everyone around him. Jesus died and he suffered and was tortured before that so he could conquer sin. There was a fuller story than just Jesus deserved this. It was part of this epic story that God was preparing. And so I want to invite you to not think of things in sort of one dimensions. Oh, this is a curse. Oh, that person is cursed. Oh, you know, uh, this is a blessing even, and that person's better. We have to think of God's richer, fuller story and be captivated by that. Let me draw to my last thing I have to say. If we are familiar with our New Testaments, we will know that Jesus' first miracle was a turning large amounts of water to wine. And wine is a symbol of blessing and bounty and Cain was supposed to overflow with it. And I love the thing uh, that Moses does in the presence of Pharaoh. And he's going to do the opposite. He's going to take the river of life, this water that does so much good in Egypt, and he's going to turn it into putrid blood. The Nile was a massive irrigation system. It watered crops, it made the empire of Egypt prosperous in so many ways. It enabled travel, uh, animated crops, and could uh, water uh, uh, all these different peoples. And suddenly Moses comes along and it is turned into something terrible and deadly. It's an unthinkable plague that the Egyptians could never have imagined. This water that they'd got so used to was going to become something unpalatable, undrinkable. And it seems appropriate for us, as I close, to understand that every good that we enjoy in life is an example of God's mercy. Nothing's automatic. Nothing is unquestionable. Nothing is there uh, without a reason. The Jews learned to say grace when they ate, to thank God for what they had. Jesus when he leads his disciples, says grace for uh, when he feeds the thousands. Christians for 2,000 years have this awkward practice. Sometimes even when unchristian guests come in are thanking God for their food. 
There's that always the awkward moment when our kids come and eat with people that aren't saved. And there is this, shall we say, grace? And some of them just go on regardless of who is listening. And I love that. That gratitude before even a meal. This thing that the world takes for granted, especially in, uh, in our rich nation where we have supermarkets that throw away food, where uh, uh, probably in our own houses we uh, uh, throw a substantial amount of grub away. We live with gratitude. Thank you, Lord, for this food. If I don't go on too long, we'll get to have lunch in our own homes. And I encourage you to remind yourselves of this holy practice of saying grace, of thanking God for something that even though you may have prepared it, even though you may have bought it, these things don't happen automatically. It's God's grace that enabled your work to bring money. It's God's grace that enabled your money to be able to buy for food. And it's your, uh, God's grace that enabled your food to be edible. Um, it's not, I didn't quite know how they've seen, I went into our fridge this morning uh, to make my kids uh, pancakes and went to this bottle of milk and it turned. I've got no idea why it turned. The fridge was perfectly fine, the rest of the food is fine. But it was completely inedible. We had to throw the whole thing away. And there is just this moment of even the food that we take is a measure of God's grace that we should be thankful for. And so let me encourage you, let Jesus be your peace. Don't let money, don't let ambition, don't let medicine, don't let family, don't let anything else be the source of your comfort and contentment. Let Jesus be your peace. And live thankful lives. Live thankful lives for even the food that we are about to receive. There's this chaos of Satan that seems to permeate so much. And it is so good to rejoice in every moment of God's grace that we see, hear and enjoy. Because God is restraining Satan at every step. You know, Satan would do far more damage than uh, uh, we see. But God keeps that at bay keeps that away, and we can be thankful and rejoicing uh, at every moment. Colossians 3.15, if you're straining to see it, says this, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you do. We thank you for all that you are. We thank you that we can trust you. Lord God, help us trust you more than anything else because you alone can bear that uh, weight that our trust needs. Lord God, you alone uh, can answer and reply and be reliable. Lord God, I pray that we would allow for our stories to be richer than one dimensional, that we would see uh, your grace and your narrative and your epic story in the highs and lows, and not just reduce stuff to curses and blessings. And uh, Lord God, I pray that we would be good at seeing your grace 
which is just all over this planet. God, we thank you that we live in a time and a space where we can uh, uh, seemingly guarantee, guarantee food on our plate uh, this afternoon. But God, I pray that we would be good at saying grace each and every time uh, that we get to eat together. That more than that, we would be good at saying grace for every moment of your graciousness that you demonstrate. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.